to have everybody here tonight. Thanks for joining us. Well, we're glad to announce the brand new grade five math course. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I found it after years. The magical metric orb of capacity. Now it, it holds 500 milliliters, but for me to get out of the forbidden tomb where I found it, I'm gonna need to go step by step to get all the way to liters. And if you don't want to leave Mark hanging, better do your calculations correctly in grade five math, so that's gonna be exciting. All right, it's time to turn it over to a man that always calculates his conversions correctly. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. Tonight, we are going to talk about lasers. And for those of you who haven't seen Star Wars, I brought one. <laughs> and uh, lasers are amazing because they can focus that light so perfectly. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how and what they are. And then I want to tell you about a whole new kind of laser. But first, let's think about some places where we use lasers. It turns out that if you've ever used a DVD player, those have a little laser inside that reads the disc. And, um, of course, laser pointers, right? <laughs> but then, uh, all the time when you're using the internet, chances are your data is going over a fiber which uses a laser to send the light signals over a little glass fiber really, really far, like miles and miles and miles and miles. So, without lasers, that really wouldn't be possible in the same way. And then, Lasers can also be really powerful. They can cut things. They can cut through metal and all kinds of really hard materials. And they are very precision. They use lasers to do some kinds of surgery. Have you ever heard of LASIK eye surgery? They actually use a laser to change your eye, to adjust the lens. So there are a lot of really amazing applications for lasers. Um, if you look at the way that um, light actually is. It's actually a whole bunch of different colors put together when you have white light. Remember how uh, the red light has a longer wave and the blue light has a shorter wave and then the ultraviolet light or the violet light has an even shorter wave all the way down to where you can't see it. Well all of those different waves together makes white light. And with a laser they use one of those colors so it's just one frequency and you know, if they're using red light, then it's a lower frequency, and blue light, it's a higher frequency. And they call that oscillation of the wave, uh, that speed of the oscillation hertz. That's how they measure it. You know, and so that's why blue laser hurts more than a red laser, right? <laughs> hurts. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, but with a laser, they use one color, but it's more than that. They also have the waves synchronized, so they go up and down together. And that's why you have this really focused beam of light that can do all these amazing things. 
In fact, it can travel extremely far and still be a really strong beam. It's one of the ways that scientists have actually measured the distance from the Earth to the moon. They put a reflector on the moon when the astronauts went up there, and then they shot a laser at it from Earth, and they can measure how long it takes the light of the laser to hit the reflector and bounce back. It's pretty amazing. And um, so there are a lot of applications for lasers, but now I want to tell you about some work that some researchers in Japan did where they're actually using sunlight to make a laser beam. This is kind of an old idea, actually, but their version is much more compact and much more efficient. It used to be that you had to have a big setup, almost like a big telescope that would collect enough light and then all this really complex optics, but they've simplified it a lot. Uh, let me show you kind of how this works. They have this uh, circular uh, disc that's only uh, several millimeters thick. It's not very thick. And then it's got a dichroic mirror on the top that will reflect certain colors of light and let in other colors. Now think about it. If we were going to turn the light from the sun into a laser, we would have to somehow convert all of those different colors into the color that the laser is, or else it just wouldn't work. So inside of that disc, they have a special liquid. They call it a sensitizer. And that absorbs the sunlight and then fluoresces one certain color. And then that one certain color is reflected by the dichroic mirror. Because remember, it only reflects one color. And so it's trapped in there. And it's bouncing back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, if you look at uh, this graph, you can see how the light's bouncing around until it hits a fiber that's coiled up inside of there. And that absorbs the light. And once the fiber, or once the light's in the fiber, it keeps going up and down the fiber, and they have mirrors on either end until they have a strong enough light to actually output a laser beam. And so this is a pretty neat technology that might have a lot of interesting applications, where instead of having to have uh, an electrical power source or something or some other energy source, they can actually use sunlight to go straight to a laser beam. Now, the efficiency isn't really great yet. They're right now, um, well, their earlier prototype was 8%, and then they have a new one that they uh, say is quite a bit better. And they're working on different sensitizers, different liquids, to improve the efficiency. But uh, they're able to make a laser with much less light, total light, than other types of uh, solar-powered lasers were able to do. So this new type of laser is going to open some new applications. In fact, the researcher, the guy leading this, has a goal to use lasers to produce hydrogen, some of his other work that he's been doing, where he uses lasers through uh, water to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. So that, that's pretty cool if uh, he can get that to work efficiently. And um, there are other ideas. Maybe we could use something like this to produce energy from lasers out in space. And uh, they, you know, they'll collect the sunlight out in space and then make a laser beam they shoot to Earth to power something. I'm just worried it's going to miss its target, you know. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if that'll take off or not. But there are a lot of neat applications. Another really neat application for lasers is long-distance communication through space. If you shoot a laser through space, it'll go and go and go and go. And you can send much more data 
far distances than you could say with a radio frequency. And so there's some, some really neat applications there. So uh, I think, uh, you know, <laughs> lasers are changing the world and they'll just keep changing it more and more. And that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. Now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. Okay, so we need to be ready tonight because this one's a little bit spooky. Oh no, is he gonna do more impressions? <laughs> Not that spooky. <laughs> no, we are talking about something tonight, a breakthrough that involved the invisible world. That, that's the um, official science gesture for the invisible world. <laughs> yeah, they have those, oh you didn't hear? Yeah because you know they have scientific names and definitions. Now they have scientific gestures that they're assigning to science things, which is really exciting because now professor, professor lectures are gonna be a lot more engaging because it'll be like, in today's lecture, we will be discussing the scientific points of the invisible world. <laughs> we'll begin with any questions that you have on the invisible world, <laughs> and we'll be closing with discussions on the Yeti, aliens, and the mermaid. <laughs> no. Okay. All right, stay focused. No. The invisible world is what we're talking about. A world that is real, but that has been invisible for centuries, thousands of years. And even today, we cannot see without special equipment. Of course, I'm talking about really, really microscopic, but living things. And we're gonna jump back to the 1600s when Antony Leeuwenhoek was working with drapery. And so he would, yes, so cool. Um, he, he had cloth that he would sell. And one of the things back then is not all cloth was equal. Of course, that's, that hasn't changed, but he had magnifying glass lenses that if you sold cloth, you would use to analyze the quality of the fabric because you had to make sure your fabric was good, and so they'd look at the little fibers and the way it was sewn and such. And he was not impressed with the magnifiers that he had, and so he started studying and tinkering with how to make these magnifying lenses. And he got into glass blowing and into sanding down pieces of glass into lenses. Now, while he was doing this, he started to learn about how this worked, okay? and. If, if we look, so if we think about like a lens, like if it's on a camera or something, we know that the lens, if you put it on a camera, it captures all this light out here, and then it focus, focuses everything that's hitting the front of this lens down to one little point, okay? That's pretty easy to envision. That's, it hits the sensor and it's a picture. What if we flipped it around and the light was over here on that little tiny point? Now it's taking that point going up and the light comes up to the lens and it's much bigger. And that's kind of the, the concept of magnifying something with a lens like this is taking that light and magnifying it and making it much larger for this tiny point. So it's a matter of getting that point smaller and smaller, okay? And he discovered that if he put a bigger 
arc on so there's concave and there's convex lenses concave means it's caved in it's like a an inward slope and convex is it's an, an outward slope so it's bulging okay and he increased the bulge larger and larger but not this big it, he he made spheres but he found that if he made the spheres smaller in size the magnitude or the magnetism the magnetism. No, not that kind of invisible world. Uh, the magnification would increase. And he would make his the size of a grain of rice and even smaller. Tiny specks, but perfect, clear spheres of glass. So he put them in this artifact. And this is his microscope. So microscopes existed at the time. But this was his personal invention. If you look on that little hole, that is where he put that tiny sphere of glass. And then those, those little things that you can turn, those are his axes of being able to move the subject that he's going to look at. So he can put tiny things he wants to look at at the tip of that screw point and then hold it up to like the sun or don't hold a magnifying glass up to the sun, but he would hold it up to the sun, maybe a candle, but he needed a lot of light. But the, the catch was you had that, that grain of glass was so small, he basically had to learn how to put it almost against his eye because it was so tiny. First of all, how do you hold that still? But being able to hold it there and then he'd tweak it and he started to be able to make microscopes that could see really well. Now again, microscopes had already been used. In fact, uh, a famous scientist, Robert Hooke, had already published a really fancy book where he drew huge drawings of fleas and insect legs with a microscope that could zoom in 30 times, you know, and it was really cool. Well, he starts doing that. And so Leeuwenhoek starts making these drawings. These are tight, tight shots of really little creatures, okay, but then it starts to get a little bit crazy because he starts to think, man, I could look at all kinds. What could I look at? He goes to the pond. He gets some pond water. He gets some stuff off his teeth. Yeah. Um, and he got that. Creativity. Um, <laughs> and he starts looking at those. Now, he had already sent these bug drawings to, like, the Royal Society of Science in Europe, which was the big science uh, organization at the time. And he was starting to get pretty well known. Then he sent them this kind of drawing. And those are different because and th they weren't static. These are things that he saw in, for example, pond water. So he's looking in the pond water, and there's this little speck, only it's moving around. It's not just going with the flow. It's like going here, it's going there. It's, it's swimming around, but it's micro, micro, microscopic. And he's blown away. And he starts researching it more, and he starts studying what kind of things. And he even names them animolecules, which I don't know why that sucked, because it's cool. And basically, animolecules means tiny animals. And he starts sending these descriptions to the Royal Institute of Science, and they start getting concerned. Um, I think he's fallen off his rocker, um, because he's describing things nobody has ever seen before. Well, it turns out that this little mechanism he had, while a lot of the other microscopes could zoom in like 30 times, he was zooming in over 200 times magnification with this little grain of glass. And he was seeing things no one had ever seen before. Eventually, the Institute sends a few men who are the specialists to come check on him and see if this is crazy or if this is real. And they're blown away because they realize it is real. 
and it opens up a whole new world of microbes, and we realize that there's a whole world that we can't see that's going on everywhere in pond water, in the stuff of your teeth. He found bacteria, in his, and that he could actually see moving around with his microscope in the 1600s. Um, pretty incredible. And this would, of course, go much further, and it would become a science of its own, but all from this guy who sold cloth and then made a really cool microscope. Now, one really cool quick fact, he never really shared how he made them, and it wasn't until like 1950, so like 70 years ago, that somebody was able to reproduce his microscope to the kind of magnification that he could achieve. And their, their guess is what he did, because this is how they did it, was they took a glass rod, a special glass, very pure glass, they heated the middle of the rod, and then they pulled it apart, and they get what they call glass whiskers, where it kind of turns into this hair of glass, and then it breaks. And then you take that really thin tip, and you start heating it and turning it, and it forms a little ball, a perfect sphere. And that's what he would use to put in, they think, to be able to get that uh, magnification that's so pure of a piece of glass that you can do something like that. But pretty incredible. And just real quick, I want to show you some video. This is not stuff that he filmed. Um, and it's a little better magnified probably and much clearer certainly. But let's look at this. So here's looking at some pond water. And we're going to zoom in to that same creature. This is why we don't drink puddles, folks. <laughs> and here's another one. Um, this one. He was very surprised to see. It has this kind of thing it sticks out to kind of feel around. Kind of weird. These are something else he discovered. He's the first one that looked at blood cells. So those are actually human blood cells. And here's some bacteria. There they are, folks. Brush your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but pr pretty incredible that all the way back then, he could unlock something that no one had ever done first by creating something, a tool, but then being curious enough to start looking and using it. So you never know. If you find an amazing tool, what will you find with that? Invisible world <laughs> of mermaids. <laughs> and now introducing Roger Billings. Just saying. <clears throat> Let me see that. <laughs> see. I'm not accusing. You're gonna put me back I'm in my observing. Box? <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome everybody today. Uh, that was pretty interesting. So we learned that you can take lasers and change your eyes. <laughs> what? Change the colors. <laughs> and we learned what to do with bugs. Okay. This has been a good, good session so it has. far. It has. So you remember last week we had some uneventful, unsix, I mean, we did a brainstorm, remember? Oh, I sure did. We were given a problem, we were gonna solve it, and the problem was to invent a way to pollinate plants growing, growing indoors. Right. And we almost did it. <laughs> that close. 
Yeah, kind of. So I'm just wondering what would be the chance that this week we could get a new challenge and see if we can redeem ourselves. What do you think, guys? Do you want to be redeemed? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we need a new page challenge. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, give me a minute. Oh, okay, okay, I'm ready too. Okay. You sure? I think that the challenge should be, the brainstorm should be something that is incredibly exciting. Incredibly exciting, like big. And something that you've never told us about before. I told everything. <laughs> no, there's still stories. Something exciting. Yeah, something, no, but not just exciting, like so really exciting. So what does it have to be? Or no something rules? that gets your heart pumping fast. I don't know rules. Is there rules? Are there rules? Your heart pumping fast. Isn't that adrenaline? what excitement does? Adrenaline? Adrenaline. Okay, mm -hmm. so we want something exciting. Let me process that. With no rules. No rules. No rules. This is a ruler. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I've got it. Already? I think I've got it. Wow. Vomit. Comet. Comet. <laughs> I'm with all the parents out there. I mean, what? comet. I meant vomit comet. Yeah, I've heard of that, actually. That is pretty exciting. No. Mm -hmm. No, there is such a thing. Well, it's, yeah. it's a NASA airplane, mm -hmm. and there's also one that is a private company that has a vomit comet. It's an airplane that goes up way up high and you have people in there and then it falls back down and as it falls you feel weightless and that feeling of weightlessness causes one third of the people that do it to throw up this is true this is true yeah. but the thing is we have a space station circling the earth way out in outer space uh -huh. and we're able to do experiments there with micro or zero gravity mm -hmm. weightless experiments. And so here is an airplane that doesn't cost nearly as much to launch into space that you can do these experiments with. And I think there's an idea there that could be exciting. If you'll go with me, uh, I'm going. I will I'm tell coming. you the idea. It's, it's going to take a minute to develop it. But first, okay. I'd like to show you some video of the vomit comet. Okay. You need to see this. This is an airplane that lets us do research on microgravity. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Microgravity experience. A vomit comet. You're going on low G, come on! This plane flies in a series of parabolic arcs so that it and everything inside can essentially be in free fall, creating a microgravity environment. Everyday activities become a lot more challenging, even things like washing your face. Oh, have a look at that the most challenging things. <laughs> okay. Wow. So that's what they do, but just think. They can do a lot of experiments that they would have had to do out in outer space. I think the vomit comet sounds a lot better than the vomit comet. The vomit comet, that's right. <laughs> What'd you think I said? <laughs> anyway, what if our challenge today were to figure out how to do microgravity right here on Earth? Wow. 
That would be pretty neat. We That'd could do cool. all sorts of experiments. We could call up NASA and say, you need some zero gravity experiments? Well, we've got you covered. Mm -hmm. That would be neat. That would be really neat, wouldn't it? So how can we get microgravity on Earth? I think I have an idea. What if you were to lift something up and then drop it? While it was falling, there'd be no gravity. Mm -hmm. Think of an elevator. If you lifted an elevator way up high and there was a person standing inside there and then you dropped it, the elevator would start going down and the person would be able to float up off the floor because they would be falling at the same speed the elevator did and they'd feel a sense of weightlessness. Right. I don't think these guys are very impressed yet. They're not. What <laughs> stoic faces. Okay, okay. Well, actually, it turns out that I brought some video to demonstrate that this will actually work. Do you want to see it? Yes, I do. Okay, microgravity demonstration. Video number one. Are you ready? Okay. Here it is. Take a look. Up now. I can already feel it. <laughs> These people are going up, 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 and they're getting ready to experience oh. zero gravity. You've got to be impressed. You've got to be. Okay, let her rip. Look at her hair. Okay, see, that's zero gravity, and it's right here on Earth. Okay, not convinced yet? Let's try it again. Look at her hair. Wow. Oh, boy. So that is microgravity. What do you think? Yeah, they're way up there. Tell me you wouldn't want to experience that. I wouldn't want to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> and there they go. One more time. Just give us one more time, please. There we go. Microgravity. Isn't that amazing? Oh, uh, yeah. I can feel that. Can you feel that? Can you imagine what oh, that would be like to feel zero gravity? This is a hair wow. saver. Is there something in there? Yes, a cellist hair saver. Okay. Oh, now this is looking much better. No hard feelings. Baseball time. No hard feelings. No, right? I'm okay, working yeah. on my feelings. All right. So, as it turns out, I'm very, very serious about this. I've been thinking for a long time that we should be able to make a uh, experiment like that, not as an amusement park ride, but as a way to do scientific research with zero gravity. Only, they only have a few seconds that they feel zero gravity. I want something you can feel it for a lot longer. And so I have an idea. Instead of building something like that, which is about 400 feet tall, mm -hmm. what if we built something taller? If it was twice as tall, you could fill zero gravity longer, couldn't you? Yes. And that would put it up at about 800 feet. Did you know that the Eiffel Tower is about 1,000 foot tall? So if we made it 200 feet taller, it'd be as tall as the Eiffel Tower, and that'd be a pretty neat thing. All we'd have to do is build a tower as tall as the Eiffel Tower, and then we'd be able to do it. That would be neat. Yeah, and, and it shouldn't be too hard to build an Eiffel Tower, should it? It's been done. Yeah, let's, let's just study how they did it. 
Okay. Uh, I want to show you a photograph of how they started out. Wow. There Look it is. That. It's kind of little there, isn't it? But you can see just those little pieces sticking out. Now let's go a little more. Yep. They got the first layer on. And a little more, and a little more, and a little more. And lo and behold, there it is, the Eiffel Tower, 1,000 foot tall. So if we could build one of those, we could actually drop experiments from the top, and we could do weightlessness here on the Earth. That would be neat. Which would be really neat. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, I don't think anybody is taking me serious. I don't think so either. But I actually am very serious. I actually want to build a tower Mm -hmm. to do weightless experiments. And I've been thinking about this for about 20 years, planning, 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 tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Only I don't want to build it a thousand foot tall. Because if I did, I'd just be as tall as the Eiffel Tower. That was built ages ago. <laughs> I was just a kid when they built that. <laughs> no, oh. I'd want to build it taller. Of course. I'd want to build it taller. You know, uh, the tallest structure in the world is a skyscraper over in Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. And it's about 2,700 feet tall. That means it's two and a half times as tall as the Eiffel Tower. And the Eiffel Tower is really tall. So if I'm going to build it, <clears throat> I want to build it 3,000 feet tall. Wow. I want to make the tallest man-made structure on the planet. That means it's going to happen, huh? Well, I think it would be neat. I do too. And we could do these experiments for NASA, and, and we could test it out. I mean, if we had a hat. Young we, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I've been thinking a lot about this. And that brings up something I want to show you. Can you see that? Mm-hmm, I can. See how shiny it is? Mm -hmm. You know what it is? Mm -hmm. What is it? It's a pencil holder. <laughs> or? That's so unromantic. <laughs> Actually, it's a container made out of a most marvelous material, mm -hmm. stainless steel. I can see that. I love stainless steel. Some of you have seen this because it's used quite a few places in our world. Mm -hmm. Stainless steel is still. It's made out of iron, still, like most iron things, except they did something magical to still to make it so that it doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't have to be painted. Mm -hmm. And I love that about it. What do you do to still to make it so you don't have to paint it? You have a magic recipe. Exactly. At least 11% of the iron has to be mixed with another element called chromium. You've heard of chrome plating? Well, mm -hmm. this is not plating. This is chromium mixed inside the still. And when that chromium is inside the still, it makes a barrier around the iron atoms so they don't get oxidized by air. You've heard of rust. You've probably seen rust. Um, I used to have a car that knew all about rust because <laughs> it rusted clear through and it was really not pleasant. Well, air conditioning, but <laughs> so stopping rust is a big problem. Rust is when iron 
the metal, makes up steel, reacts with water. And the water gives off little microscopic hydrogen bubbles, and the oxygen combines with the iron to form iron oxide, which is kind of a reddish powder. Iron oxide is not a sheet like metal, so it just make a hole in things. And if you look at anything that is made out of steel that's left outside, usually even for just one day, you can start to see rust form. But if when you make the steel, if you mix it with 11% or more of chromium, then you get stainless steel. And there's a whole bunch of recipes for stainless steel. You, you're reading stuff. She's bored. Well, I got a message from one of your students who says, tell Roger my dad. Now she's covering. <laughs> tell Roger. Okay. That's you. That's me. My dad wants to help you build the tower. Sign him up. Okay. Okay, sign him up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me all I, the trouble. I'm actually pretty <laughs> serious about this, and as I go just a little bit farther, you're going to find mm -hmm. out, hey, wait a minute. This guy really thinks we're going to build this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Give me a minute. We're going to build it out of stainless. You know, there's guys that constantly paint the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> By the time they get through, they have to start over again. <laughs> I mean, because the rust wears off. I mean, the, the paint wears off. Mm -hmm. And if they don't keep it painted, it'll rust. If they had made it out of stainless, it would never rust. I like yeah. that. But I want to talk a little bit more about stainless. There's a lot of different recipes for making stainless. The most popular one doesn't have 11% chromium. If it has more than 11% chromium, it's considered stainless steel. There's all different kinds. They have so many recipes, guess what they named them? Numbers. Yeah, it's like, you know, you have kids, and so you name them. Okay, kid number one, number two, <laughs> number seven, get over it. Of course, seven's a lot. But stainless even has more kids because the most popular one's called 304. Oh, really? 304 stainless. Mm -hmm. I thought it was the other number. 304 stainless has 18% chromium, and it also has 10% nickel. When you put nickel in, it makes it even less corrosive. Neat. The other popular one is 316. Mm -hmm. Everybody ought to remember that. 304 stainless and 316, those are the two most popular ones. 316 is the same as 304, except they add one more ingredient, just 2% of something called molybdenum, another element. And the difference with 316 is not only does it not rust, but it's resistant to acids. On 304, acids can wreak havoc. On 316, okay. it's acid resistant. Stainless is good stuff. If I was going to make a tower, I would like to make it out of stainless. That'd be gorgeous. Is that a actually. good idea? It'd be really pretty. It would not need to be painted. <laughs> it would shine. That'd be really good. Wouldn't it be fun to build the tallest tower in the world, the tallest structure in the world? It would. Actually, if I was up there putting the pieces in, I'm not sure that would be so fun. 3,000 feet in the air? That's way up there, isn't it? That is higher than any man-made object. And so that's why we're going to turn to technology. And by the way, this is what makes this feasible. If we were real clever and we made this out of pieces of stainless that were stamped out and made just right so that it fit together like a puzzle, 
wouldn't it be possible to make robots that would climb up the tower and put them in? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> that would be neat to watch. Yes, that will be. That will be neat to watch. And that's my plan. <laughs> now, that's I'm neat. even thinking about where we're going to get all the stainless. Where we're going to get it. And it turns out that you can make still by refining iron ore. You know what iron ore is, don't mm -hmm. you? It's dirt. Yep. There's some dirt that we mine out of the ground that's red. And a particular kind of red dirt is iron ore. It's this, almost the same stuff as the rust the still turns into if you leave it out in the water. Okay? Okay. So if you take that iron ore and put it into a furnace, and then you blast in air at the bottom, make it really, really hot, and then you put charcoal briskets in, you know, like you're going to barbecue? If you put those in there, the charcoal is eaten up, pulling all of the oxygen out, and all of the oxygen comes out as CO2, and it leaves still. That's how we make all of our still. It's called a blast furnace. You've heard of them. The problem is, I grew up by a blast furnace, and they stink. Mm -hmm. And the charcoal briskets that they use, mm -hmm. they make out of coal. And coal's pretty neat, except it's got a lot of other stuff in it, like sulfur. And so when you put it in the blast furnace, it smells. And that's not cool. That's why people haven't traditionally liked to live by blast furnaces. Well, a long time ago, I had an opportunity, an interesting story. On a trip to Japan, I met with the president of uh, Mitsubishi Petrochemical in Tokyo. And I was telling him, you know, they're making still the wrong way. And he says, what do you mean it's the wrong way? Well, they're putting coal in a coking oven, which drives out everything, including all the smell, into the air. And then they put it in the blast furnace and make the still, and it's all so smelly. What they should do instead of using coal and coke, they should be using pure hydrogen. Because if you bubble hydrogen up through the blast furnace, you get still, same way, no smell. He introduced me to Nippon Still, and I told them all about my idea. And they got pretty excited about it, and they actually did it. They built plants that produced still using hydrogen instead of coal. And the interesting thing is the still that comes out is a very pure still, perfect for making stainless. And the other nice thing about it, it doesn't make all that darn pollution. We had a real problem making still in this company because people got tired of choking. <laughs> and we spent a lot of money trying to clean up the pollution coming out of our still plants, and we did pretty good. But the equipment to clean up pollution is very expensive, and it made it very expensive to produce our clean still. It wasn't the still was cleaner, it's that we didn't make all the smell. But now we could build plants that would be able to take the hydrogen, reform the still, and not far from here, just across the border of Missouri over in Kansas, and, and a little further over in Kansas, there has been discovered a large underground reserve of hydrogen, which we could use oh. to make the stainless. That's neat. Yeah, that's, that's neat. exciting. So we can make, we need a lot of stainless to build 
the tower. When they built the Eiffel Tower, if I remember correctly, there was about six million pieces of steel they put into that tower. And they built it in just a few years. And they had no robots. So what if we had a really good source of very fine, affordable stainless steel, mm -hmm. and then what if we could create these little robots? So the little robots would take a piece of stainless steel that had been shaped and had holes and everything just right, and they'd go crawling up the side of this tower to as far up as it was, and then they'd snap it into place, <laughs> fasten it. Okay, you don't get what I'm saying. Let me demonstrate. Okay. <clears throat> oh, you have something. Oh, yeah, I just happened to bring something, okay? So this is my little, that's called the ground, okay? And this is a little piece of stainless steel. Really, it's uh, some Magnus with shrink tube, but you, know, you get the point. So the robots would set that up, and it would stick there. Then they would go crawling up the side of it, little robots and then stick in another piece and it better be turned over and then they crawl up even higher with another piece and pretty soon we would reach 3,000 feet. That would be cool. So do the pieces fit inside each other a little bit? Is it tapered? Yep. yep. They all, it, you want to know what the tower looks like? I do. You think I have that figured out too? Well, let me uh -huh. finish telling you about okay. this. Then, then so ask excited. questions. <laughs> questions come later. Okay. So anyway, when it gets up 3,000 feet, uh -huh. we have the tallest man-made structure in the world. That's awesome. And I think it's really neat. And we have elevators in it so that we can drop down and, uh, you know, we can actually do this whole... Uh, you know what? <laughs> I'm just saying, that's what we could do. Are you getting the idea now? I need to find that little button you have because your hair's not going up. It's only mine. <laughs> That's discriminatory, isn't it? I, <laughs> I love I, it, by the way. I, I want I to love apologize. That well, I want to why? apologize <laughs> for not pointing it at me, too. <laughs> me, too. <laughs> me, too. Okay, well, anyway. So uh, what we need to do now is figure out what we should make our tower look like. We can't make it look like the Eiffel Tower. It's beautiful, but it's, you know, that's their icon. That's right. an old design. Uh, other people have made really beautiful things out of stainless, and they were very smart to make it out of stainless because they never have to paint it. Have any of you seen the Walt Disney Theater made out of stainless Walt, in Los Angeles? Let's take a look at that. No, I haven't. No, I haven't Isn't that pretty? It's not very, I mean, it's not 3,000 foot tall, but it's beautiful, and it doesn't have to be painted. And right here in Missouri, over on the St. Louis side, the symbol of St. Louis is a stainless steel arch. Would you like to see the arch? Mm -hmm. There it is. Look That's at that pretty, beautiful stainless that steel. And that just shows you what a great idea it is. But you see, um, nobody really knows what the symbol for Kansas City is. That's true. Nobody knows. We need one. I think it's a tower. Mm-hmm. I do Don't too. you think so? Yes. And, uh, you know, when, when Mr. Eiffel decided that he was going to build the Eiffel Tower, a lot of people were really upset. 
They said, this is going to be the ugliest thing. It's going to be like a giant smokestack over Paris. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. And they even formed a committee, and all these people signed this big petition. People against the Eiffel Tower, and they all started fighting him, and he got bashed being this horrible person because he wanted to build a tower. I don't know if I could take the criticism. <laughs> but at any rate, it seems like Kansas City needs an icon. We need oh, a marker. Yes. We need a Definitely. marker. Everybody will see and say, oh, Kansas City, right? Mm -hmm. That's where the tallest structure in the world is. I mean, out of beautiful ambitious. stainless steel. Very ambitious. Well, you know, Kansas City, Missouri, is a wonderful place. Yes. I love it here, and I'm, I'm really excited that Cellus can be headquartered in Kansas City. But, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, Kansas City's famous for. I mean, World Series, Baseball Royals, Super Bowl, Kansas City Chiefs, and, and I mean, just to mention those. <laughs> but there's another thing that Cannon City is very famous for, and that is many of us call Kansas City the engineering capital of the world. Yes. And that's because we have mega engineering firms, mm -hmm. as in the form of Black and & Veatch and others. Yep. So this... I, and I mentioned Black and Veatch on purpose because I have some friends over there and I started telling them about my idea for this tower that I thought we should build in Kansas City. And they kind of scoffed it off. And so I said, do you want to know what I'm going to call it? And they said, what are you going to call it? And I thought, boy, think fast, think fast, <laughs> think fast. Um, it's going to be used to do experiments so that we won't be so far. I mean, there's a big backlog of experiments to do in the space station. So I'm going to call it the Space Tower. Love it. They said, the Space Tower. Are you serious? Yeah, all out of stainless. And then they started to get a little more serious. And we're going to have robots build it. And you know, we really can. The technology exists today to build robots that would build the tallest tower in the world. Yeah, one of your students says not to burst your bubble, but wouldn't, wouldn't be the first, the biggest man-made tower would be the biggest robot-made tower. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the big, I think they're listening. He's got a think? point, but we're going to build the robots. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, the people at Black and Beach got kind of serious about this, and they sent me a video of their idea of what the space tower should look like. And I thought, I think everybody would like to see that. They would. They'd like to see what the space tower looks like. And can you imagine if we had a space tower in that, like that, what it would do to your hair? <laughs> Stop it. Okay. Would you like to see? I really like that one, by the way. This is the first public <laughs> unveiling of the space tower. Take a look. flying towards it. You see it over the horizon? You can see this from well past Columbia. It's so tall. And as you can see, it's got spacey modern lines. Let's go on up. Look at the observation decks. There's a lower one. It's as tall as the Eiffel Tower. The tall one up there is as tall as the tallest building in the world. 
here well. What do you think? The Kansas City Space Tower. And you know, um, before the Eiffel Tower was built, it was exactly what this one is, a figment of the imagination, an idea, a concept. And it's interesting because it could literally be paid for by the science experiments that could be done. And it's tall enough that we could do some pretty meaningful uh, microgravity experiments. It also, I think, would be a really fun tourist attraction. Did you know that the number one tourist attraction, the last time I looked at stats, was the Eiffel Tower? Wow. I think 6.7 million people a year go there to see that beautiful icon of the city of love or Paris. And uh, in Kansas City, um, you know, we're the show me state, so <laughs> we will show them the space tower. What do you think? Thing is, so what is microgravity? Microgravity, hmm, so I've heard that before. What is it? <laughs> That's okay. my question. If you say that there's no gravity, uh -huh. so we're weightless like we are out in space, uh -huh. that's pretty neat. But actually, to get gravity down to zero, is, is really not practical. So what we do is we get it down to almost zero. Oh, okay. So micro means a very, very, very micro part of, of gravity. Very, very little gravity. Like zero gravity. Cool. Only it isn't quite technically correct to say absolutely zero. Okay? Well, some of your students and I think we should call it the Billings Tower. Well, we already got that. I know, That's what this but is. I know, but they didn't know that. So. But we will have a view deck from the Billings Tower to look out at the Space Tower, okay? Really cool. But this could be a tribute to, uh, to space. And you know, uh, surprisingly, by building it out of stainless and pre-engineering all the parts, so they go up and they get popped into place by robots, mm -hmm. which is very, very doable, actually makes this economically possible as long as someone's willing to put a lot of the money right there which I really think we can do. Wouldn't that be fun? I think that you ought to have robots checking the joints and making, doing maintenance on it. And yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. and I'm sure we will. Um, in our programs at the International Academy of Science, you know, we teach applied science. Yep. We teach people how to make robots. We teach people how to make computers, how to build real things. Uh, we're in the process of acquiring uh, a really interesting machine that I'm kind of thrilled about. It's a 3D printer. And some of the kids are saying, oh yeah, I have one at home. And they do. They have <laughs> little 3D printers and print out little plastic things. But the one that we're acquiring prints out pieces of metal. Titanium, stainless steel, cool. real metal. And it does so in a way that is is the strongest cast metal. It's a, a really neat 3D printer. Uh, there are students that actually want to come to our school just to get to use one of these. But it's uh, going to be coming a little bit later this year, and some of us are 
are really excited about it. And I have some experiments that I've been wanting to do for over a decade, but I can't because I can't figure out how to make them. They're complicated little gizmos. And with this printer, we will actually be able to make parts that will be able to be fabricated by this printer. And it's, it's kind of a neat thing. There's one kind of metal 3D printer that rolls a big roller with fine pieces of, of metal powder across the top, and then it uses a powerful laser to melt the parts of the metal that you want to be fused to the part. The one we're looking at is the step above that, where it actually uses a, a special ion beam to melt the stainless or the titanium right into the metal, and it makes it a little bit more dense and even cast metal and stronger. You can actually print out a, a jet turbine blade, which is a very high temperature and precision, and put it in a working engine. So it's pretty nifty. Uh, nowadays, there is a real neat technology. This is the base of my space tower. So this isn't really one, but I'm getting one. And it's a little thing you hold in your hand, and it's a scanner. And you can scan a shape. You could literally take this can and scan it and then print it out of stainless. That is cool. Or some other part. That is which neat. is really neat. Technology in the area of 3D printers is just amazing. The, the first ones, to my knowledge, the first series ones came out in 2011. I mean, that's only, what, nine years ago? And now we actually can do commercial things with these. And I'm I'm very excited about it. This is the kind of stuff that we are teaching in our school. Another thing that we have new uh, this past year uh, is a uh, pick and place line. And that's an automated line that makes computer parts, like the robots we use in our STEM courses and things. And this is a, well, a $1.2 million machine that can allow us to make a lot of the parts that we've been importing from other countries. And uh, we've had pick and place machines for the last 15 years here, but this, this new line is just unbelievable. And the, the way that it works is that we take a circuit board, it's blank, and we put it into the machine, goes into the first compartment, and there it prints solder on the board, only it's a solder paste. And then after it prints it on the board with a kind of like a silk screen process, it has a scanner that scans it to make sure it's all perfectly coated and even. If it is, then it goes over a conveyor into the next machine that starts putting the parts on it to make it be the circuit board that it needs to be. And some of these parts are so small, you can't really handle them by hand. You can barely see them. And it puts those on, and then it moves over to the next machine, and the next machine, there's three of those that put all the parts on, and then it comes out into the inspection machine. And the final inspection is capable of telling if every part's in the right place, if the wrong part's been put in there, it can actually read the numbers on the part, say, uh-oh, that's the wrong resistor, whether it's perfectly lined up and everything, because if it's not right, you don't want to solder it. If everything passed inspection that goes in the oven and out the other side comes aboard, we can put in a computer or in a Wi-Fi or a network or even in a cellist robot. So it's really kind of exciting. 
Uh, I tell you about this because these kinds of technologies are, are really neat. If you learn to run this cutting edge stuff, you won't have a hard time finding a job. And these are the kind of things that we're training on at the International Academy of Science. And you know where we get our students at the Academy? Right out of a cellist. And guess how we choose them? How? We look at your record. Have you been diligent? Have you studied? Did you take good math courses? Were you diligent? Mm -hmm. And if you did, you'll probably get a scholarship. That's how it works. And uh, interestingly, if you want to go into a little bit different field, the other colleges in our great nation look at you, how you did in school to decide if they're going to give you their scholarships. A lot of our Cellus Academy graduates are getting very good scholarships at some of the finest schools in the world. So um, studying hard, working hard, is an investment in yourself and something you ought to be very diligent about. Okay? Okay. Do you want to see that hair thing one more time? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> I put my hat on. All right. Ready. Well, I want to thank everyone for, for joining us this week. It's been really, you look nice in that. Yeah. It's, it's really wonderful to, uh, to have you here and talk about science. And one of the things that makes things like this space tower exciting is because I really want to build it. And I really plan to. I think you're to. going to. Well, I have enough money pulled together now to build about that much of it. <laughs> well, but it's a every year it gets a little bit taller, a little taller, a little taller. I mean, the Eiffel, so. Eiffel Tower started out just a little bit. Yes, it sure did. And he built it. And, and the Space Tower hasn't even started out a little bit yet, but the concept is born. That's right. And tonight, I hope I'm getting the idea in a lot of people. And I'm going to need <laughs> very brilliant students to be able to design the robots, uh -huh. other students for designing all the parts of the tower so they go together. You know, the St. Louis Arch is kind of an engineering demonstration because if you cut the arch off and look at the cross section, it's kind of a magic shape for engineers because it makes it really strong in that shape. And we have to do that with all of these uh, parts that we're going to put in the space tower. They've got to have all these magic engineering properties. And the only way that you know that is by learning the science of it. That's so neat. with knowledge, you get power. With power, you could build the tallest space tower on the whole planet. Okay? okay. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.